The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mentory TV podcast and Thrive with Patricia Falco Beccali. Welcome back to another edition of COVID 19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco Beccali, your host. Well, for this episode, I thought with all these businesses that might not make it through this crisis, I thought, isn't there a better more complete model of building businesses and practicing management. Perhaps we have this crisis also to have a chance to redefine how we define profits, how we define capital, and how we move as businesses, not only locally, but also globally. Well, there is this concept, it's out there, it's called economics of mutuality. And for today's episode, I did invite the inventor, the founder, and basically also the person really pushing the entire concept and implementing it across the board, Bruno Rochefort. Bruno, so good to see you and to have you on the show. Good morning, Patricia. It's good to be here. (laughs) Bruno, um, economics of mutuality, you know, it sounds really very complex. It is quite complex. However, once you break it down, um, it's does make sense. And I think what is important to mention right at the beginning is that it actually helps uh, to build resilience, not only for businesses, but businesses piling up for the entire economy. And let me first of all, uh, ask you uh, a reaction of a screen share, a comment you actually made, Bruno, um, not too long ago. And this is, uh, this is it. it should come up here. There you go. So what do you what do you say to that? People and planet are still in service of business. Business is in service of finance, and eventually finance is in service of itself. That's unstable and unfair system. Well, actually, we could also add that nowadays finance is not even in service of itself. With the negative interest rates, you could argue that. That system has is so dysfunctional that actually it even destroys the value that finance used to create f- for itself. And in a sense, the other comment I like to make, based on this uh, earlier comment I made, I think like a few years ago, is that the essentially the business existed before capitalism, and essentially even uh, uh, and business will exist after capitalism. And essentially, capitalism is a short period in history that actually was invented. Uh, to support business and to support the economy. 
and uh, especially the financial capitalism, which was kind of invented in the uh, late 70s, early, uh, late 60s, early 70s, has been uh, very effective, actually, in my view, until the mid-80s, until the mid-80s, late-80s. But since the um, first crisis we had in 87, you could see, actually, that uh, the, dysfunctional, the, the dysfunctionality of finance has increased to the point where we, we are today, where we have negative interest rates around the world, and that essentially we have a system which is entirely uh, focused on creating financial value at a time where financial capital is overly abundant. And the third comment I'd like to make is that I, mean, I'm, I, I study economics, I'm also uh, teaching economics in different parts of, of the world, and, and if, if you want to make economics extremely simple, economics is the, science, the management of scarcities. So uh, 50 years ago, financial capital was scarce. And, but uh, natural resources and human and social capital were overly abundant. So at that time, inventing a system which was based on financial capitalism to create financial capital made a lot of sense. Nowadays, 50 years later, well, it's just the opposite. We have uh, abundance of uh, financial capital to the extent, yes, I, I, as I said, we have negative yeah. interest rates. But at the same time, we have also form of scarcities in the, uh, in, in the ecosystem in which we operate. Yet, our model is still focusing on creating something which is overly abundant without, without taking into account the other form of scarcity that exists and are not only exist, but also are required to, uh, yeah, to, to sustain the economy. Yeah, and that means that you are actually trying to say we need to include more than just financial capital into what is capital in building a business and an economy. So it needs to be an extended, broader view. That's right. There is, there is uh, the extension to, to creating all the form of capital that business needs to, to operate, that the economy needs to, to operate, is a, is a priority at the macro level. But also, it is also a requirement at the micro level. So, in a sense, uh, today, uh, businesses uh, need, of course, financial capital to operate. Uh, that that's, hasn't changed. But companies also need uh, natural capital. Uh, they also need uh, social and human capital to operate. And the issue we have today is that the management model that we have does a very good job at managing the financial capital um, of the company. But it's, uh, we, we don't know yet how to manage all the form of capital which has which are as important and as necessary to, to, for business and the economy than financial capital. So and this is, this other, is essentially other, the idea. Yeah. So, yeah, and which other capitals you would include? Because uh, you could say, well, economics of uh, mutuality is nothing else but, ESG, uh, but the ESG. So what's the big difference? And there seems to be a difference, right? Yes. Um, the the um, a bit of history, we, we, when we started this uh, this this journey, uh, it was two years before the crisis in 2006. And uh, it started with the question I, I had from, from the management of my company and, and the board of the company. And the question was, uh, what should be the right level of profit for a company like, like ours? And that question was not asked in the context of we should make more money, or we should make less money, or we should give money back to the society. No, it was what is the right level of profit that would maximize the performance of the business in its ecosystem? And so it was a strategic question. It was not a reporting question. It was not the way the company should actually report uh, 
its activities in, in so for society or for the environment. No, no. It was what is the right level of profit that would, on, in a particular point in time, maximize the performance of the business in its ecosystem. So the starting point of the economics of mutuality is not the same as the starting point of ESG. ESG was designed for reporting purposes. Economics of mutuality was designed for management performance purposes. And so this is the, the, uh, the, the, the first, uh, the first uh, difference. The second difference is that, in a sense, in order to define the right level of profit, we had to do two things. The first one is to say, well, you cannot define the profits ex nihilo. So it, it is always in the relationship with, with other form of capital. And that's why any business needs the land to provide natural resources. It needs the people to provide um, skills and, and relationship and money, financial capital, to provide liquidity in the system. And any business actually needs its three components, um, different proportion, but we all need its three components. And uh, the idea we had in 2006 to say, well, if we were to manage a business based on this performance metrics, would it lead to a better business in terms of performance or a different business or a lesser business, less, less performance business? That was number one question. The second question was, Essentially, the, the legal boundaries of the firm are fairly limited. They include the shareholders, the management, and the employees. And, uh, but today, business operate in a much wider ecosystem. And the uh, strategic ecosystem of the firm is not limited to legal boundaries of the firm. Not anymore. So we say, in order to actually to, um, to manage our business and to understand the level of profit we have to make, we also have to understand what are the most important stakeholders in the ecosystem in which we operate, how they will contribute to our own performance, and how, in return, we can contribute to their own performance. Yeah, and let me jump in there, because it, one thing for sure, the, the awareness of stakeholders has been around for a while, but it seems always to have been a value extraction kind of approach. What can I get out of you, rather than value creation together, where, of course, the word mutuality comes into play? Mm. Yes, there is, a, in a sense, a shift to say, well, value extraction is a very efficient model. It works. You can build empires on value extraction model. It's a bit similar to slavery. Slavery f f was, and still is actually in some part of the world, a very efficient economic model. Yet, if this, beside all the moral uh, um, uh, considerations, our argument is that it's not optimum. There is a better model. And to some extent, we can say the same parallel with financial capitalism. Financial capitalism works fine. If we speak today, it's because essentially uh, it works, right? However, our argument is that it is less optimum than a model which is based on value creation versus value extraction. And the difference, in my view, is that it has to do with the type of relationship that the firm establishes with its uh, stakeholders in the ecosystem. You can have power relationship in the sense that you are leveraging your power, your size, to take advantage of the others. You dictate, and it, you dictate and the it, terms. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's uh, like a power, power game, and it works, right? But there is a higher model, which is a reciprocal model, a model based on reciprocal relationship. So that's why we call it economics of mutuality, because it is an economic which is based on building reciprocal relationship 
with the most strategic stakeholders that are material to the purpose of your firm and across a number of capital, which is not only financial capital. So you have a performance dimension, which is a different form of capital, and you also have a relational uh, component, which is about the type of relationship that the firm can establish. With, so so uh, it is basically win-win, but not in the sense I win twice and you lose, but it is really win-win. We both get something out of it. So you were talking about we have to redefine what we actually see as profits. At the same time, we, we are redefining what we're putting into the business in form of capital. So how does this relationship really needs, need to shift And how is that really implemented on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, you uh, are the chief economist also of Mars uh, Incorporated. How does Mars, for example, that is big, big uh, in the economics of mutuality, practicing it, implementing it with its own stakeholders, how does it look like? It is actually one of the um, maybe distinctive components of the economics of mutuality because it has been started within the large corporation, right? So it started with a very pragmatic uh, uh, spin on it. I mean, at Mars, uh, we make chocolate bars, we make pet food, we make uh, veterinarian services. So we are very, very, very down-to-earth people. But at the same time, we had the chance of developing this um, management theory uh, with, with the academic world, in particular Oxford University and, and, and others. So we had the chance, actually, to, to test, first of all, within the Mars ecosystem, whether, um, yeah, whether actually a model which is based on multiple form of capital and different type of relationship with stakeholders, to what extent this kind of model would perform. So we had a chance to do it with Mars businesses, of course, and to test it, and we'll come to that in a minute. But we also had a chance through Oxford University to access to other companies who are already practicing this without necessarily calling it economics and maturity, but they are practicing aspect of it. And to our surprise, When we did our research, we, we found actually that this kind of business that are based on managing multiple forms of capital and that are based on developing this kind of uh, reciprocal relationship with the stakeholders which are material to the purpose of the firm, not only they are more um, responsible in terms of the impact on society and environment, but also they were outperforming. And when I'm talking outperforming, I'm talking about bottom line and top line, financial top line and bottom line. So it's really about uh, having a, a better model for managing resources. So that's why we call the economics of maturity a management innovation. So it's a bit similar to when a company invests in a new technology, um, the company should expect a return from that investment. And the economics of maturity is similar to a technology. So when you uh, uh, invest in it, There is a cost, of course, in terms of complexity. There is a cost also in terms of change of culture and management and, and training. But you should expect actually a return. And the type of return you could get is twofold. The first one is uh, in normal times, you should expect higher level of, um, of, of uh, earnings and higher level of, uh, of revenues. But in periods of hardship, you should also expect a higher level of, re of, re of resilience. And through the last, uh, well, through the COVID crisis, I can see actually, I I don't have yet um, strong evidence, but I can see actually the businesses that have been built on this concept of mutuality are actually more resilient in the crisis. Uh, they managed to mobilize uh, resources uh, in, in the form of social capital, human capital, that actually other companies don't have. 
And actually, it makes a big difference. So this is for the overarching vision. Now, in terms of how we put it in practice uh, within, within Mars, we had a chance to have a few leaders in the, in the company uh, which, who really believed that that was a superior way of making business. Not superior in terms of moral compass. No, no. Superior in terms of economic efficiency. And, uh, and we started to test it. And we tested it in different places, in, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in poor countries, in rich countries. And we eventually ended up with, um, with um, uh, a kind of a system uh, in which we can turn around a business unit in such a way that, uh, A, the company is uh, centered on the, on the purpose. So we are talking about purpose-led value creation model and the concept of purpose today is, is quite popular but 10 years ago it was not yeah. and and purpose is number one purpose is a, is a strategic asset uh, it's not a communication tool right it's not uh, a way to bring people together no no in our view a purpose is uh, is all about uh, being uh, being focused on solving a pain point in the ecosystem. It's the real DNA of a business, why you start your business, right? Yes, why? And it's really, by the way, and actually every business should have its own purpose. And the way we define purpose is that the purpose of business is not to make profit. The purpose of business is to uh, create profitable and scalable solutions to the problem of the people on the planet, not profiting from creating problems to the people on the planet. So this, but, is, a this is a generic model, yeah. and then every company can actually take this kind of generic definition and apply it to its, own to its own definition. But in parallel, what is critically important is that it is a purpose that is at the center of the ecosystem, not the company. So we're asking the company to do a kind of Copernican revolution in such a way that the company is not at the center of the ecosystem, the company is just one stakeholders out of many, and the role of the, of the firm is to orchestrate the uh, stakeholders which are material to the purpose of the ecosystem. And by doing this, it's creating uh, an environment which is more conducive to uh, value creation than value extraction. That's, that's step number one. And it's, uh, it's, if, you, if you don't have it, essentially you're starting with, uh, with, with, on, on, on a lower ground. This concept of Purpose-led value creation model is something which we theorized with Oxford and which actually which we applied at Mars. This is number one. It's very pragmatic, but at the same time, it's also extremely inspiring. That's number one. Number two is to say, well, uh, you need now to understand the structure of the ecosystem in which you operate. So you have to map the ecosystem of the stakeholders, which are material to the purpose, and to be very clear about how as a business unit, how can I address some of the most acute pain points in that ecosystem? And whether I can do it myself or I can actually mobilize resources in the ecosystem, including the competition, that could actually solve the, the problem in order to make an ecosystem which is higher in terms of resilience and also in terms of uh, sophistication. That's number two. It's critically important to understand this the, uh, the, uh, the, the ecosystem. And we have also developed there a set of methodologies to map the ecosystem in such a way that people understand uh, how, at the company, you can, uh, uh, through strategy, impact the ecosystem. The third element is about measurement. Because yeah. in, in business, uh, 
you manage well what you measure. So today we have a lot of metrics for financial capital, but we say we develop a series of metrics in this, which we call social capital for the type of relationship that we exist in the ecosystem, human capital to describe the type of wealth that exists at the individual level, but also natural capital. And we, we, we have developed these this metrics, and the metrics we have developed are for management purposes, not for reporting. It's really to help business make better decisions. And over the last 14 years, we have now enough evidence to show that the type of metric that we have developed uh, not only are simple and scalable, and you don't need a PhD in ecology to understand what we're talking about, but most importantly, they are um, related, and there is a causal relationship between the metric that we have defined and financial performance. So in other words, when the company invests in interventions uh, that are measured through the metric we have de developed, uh, not only they impact positively uh, society, environment, but also they invest in their own um, assets, if you like. Yeah. And to some extent, it's similar to marketing expenses or to R&D expenses. Uh, you need to spend a bit of money to build your brand, okay? You need to spend a bit of money to, to uh, in, in, you know, innovate. And our argument is that we are at a stage where now companies, companies that are not willing to invest in interventions to grow the social, human, natural capital yeah. in the ecosystem in which they operate will not actually uh, survive. It's a bit like the companies which refused to invest in marketing 30 years ago. I mean, yeah. companies which actually did, did not accept the branding revolution today actually no longer exists. And the last bit, which I would like to, to share, is, um, you know, my, our view is that it's not because finance is a problem today that finance could not be a solution for tomorrow. And uh, we, we, we developed this, this concept that you need a, a different type of bottom line. Today, we have a financial bottom line, uh, which is very aligned if the purpose of the company is to maximize profit. If the purpose of the company is not to maximize profit only, but to, maxi to create value, then you need a different type of management account. So we developed this concept of mutual PL, which is uh, uh, an innovation that leverages the language and the practice of accounting in order to create a different type of profit, which is actually probably closer to the, to, to the fair level of profit. It could be higher than, this, than the financial profit, it could be lower than financial profit, depending on actually how you are developing your, your, uh, your strategy, but it is an indication of how mutual is a given company vis-a-vis -vis its environment. And eventually through this mutual profit, we are responding to the initial question that was asked to us in 2006, what should be the right level of profit. So finance is a critically important function in order to um, enact this this transformation. Yes, and I think the metrics is something so crucial because uh, you mentioned 
so many things. I've got thousands of questions in my head there, Bruno. So let me just roll it back a little bit and go step by step. The first thing is, of course, the metrics in order to measure profitability. Mm. Because at the end of the day, unless a business is viable, making money, it will stop being a business uh, and just go bust. So the mutuality, if it not, uh, it's not implemented right, or the, the, the concept of, of uh, the economics of mutuality, will not necessarily be successful. So metrics is important to keep mm. track. Uh, and to make sure that there is a profit. Now, first of all, my question is, you just said, you know, businesses that are cash strapped, it does take investment in order to establish this kind of way uh, of business construction. All right? right. So right this crisis, how can this crisis and with so many struggling businesses be actually an opportunity to create economics of mutuality and say, okay, let's, let's just go for the long term. Let's make our businesses resilient. Let's learn from this crisis. We didn't weather it very well, but with another approach, more holistic approach to capital, to generating mm -hmm. profits and getting as many companies on board as possible, we can weather the next bad times to come. Yes, you, you're raising the two important points here. I mean, the notion of profit is critically important. Without profit, companies cannot uh, survive and they cannot uh, prosper. And uh, so the notion of profit is critically important. It is central to uh, the economics of mutuality. And here I'm talking about financial profits. So really, the financial dimension of profit is critically important. And uh, we have dozens of examples that show that Business that are based on the economics of mutuality are actually making more profit. So, and I think it, you can explain this because um, if the purpose of profit is to enrich rich shareholder, it is not as inspiring as if profit is meant to solve a problem in the ecosystem. So, in terms of in terms of intention, I think you can galvanize much more energy if the purpose is not only to make rich, already rich people. I think there is, this is a psychological uh, component. Now, the functional component is that, you know, if you only focus on, on making profit and extracting value, you're wasting a lot of resources. And if you're not wasting them, you, mis you mismanage them. So there is a lot of untapped resources that we don't know how to tap with the current model. So in a sense, the economics of maturity is a model that can actually help business to tap into untapped resources. So you should not be surprised that if you're adding resources to your business and that you're managing them more um, efficiently. efficiently, you should end up with a, better, with a better and higher level of performance. So the good news is actually through very simple principles, you can already actually build better business by leveraging the... Um, the uh, relationship and the human resources that you have at your disposal. So this is a high level, if you like, uh, perspective. Now, I think in a sense, what this COVID crisis is showing, and we will see uh, what what we well, we'll see over the next uh, few few years, eventually what will happen. But it shows actually that it shows actually that the when the globalization is not um, organized on principles which are uh, based on reciprocity. Yeah, or at least at a level of playing field, a paradigm yeah. cohesion. Yeah, and you saw actually that the, the, because the COVID, the COVID in a sense is not, in, the COVID is a very small virus. It's not, uh, we, we could have ended up with a much more vicious type of, 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 of pandemic. But still, like a small virus, like a form of a, of a, of a flu, is actually putting the world on its knees. So 
it shows actually how fragile we are. It shows actually the, uh, the fact that models which are based just on extracting value across the globe without taking into consideration the uh, higher strategic issues and also the type of relationship we want to build with across different supply chains is not, is not very efficient. Okay? So I think we, we, we still see today that the model that we have developed over the last 50 years is not resilient and, uh, and, and actually could even lead to, yeah, to, uh, to issues which would really be damageable for, for society and the environment. So I think we are at a time where we still have enough resources, enough energy, uh, enough yeah, perspective to shift the model from just value extraction for shareholder to uh, value creation for many. And I think I think there's a couple of dimensions I would like to touch on what you were just saying. One thing is you, you mentioned globalization. So I have a lot to do with uh, startup companies, scale-up companies. So really uh, at the beginning of creating something that they expect to become an empire, a global player. Now, already in that creation, I wonder to what extent, a little bit like the supply chain management of fair trade, um, these kind of businesses need to look at the people, um, the service, service providers for their own business, already adapting the same kind of business model in order mm -hmm. to build their own. Because one thing for sure, I can do EUM if all of my suppliers might not do it, there is a huge mismatch and again in a crisis perhaps you will see those cracks so that's that's my my first issue the other question i want to ask you bruno i can do it from my corporate side as a business and try my best and to bring other other companies also on board to see business business management my way what about the public sector do you think we are at a moment where the public sector can actually really not only unplug as they did our economies but now replug in a different way and look at how we do business on a global level more holistically more inclusively uh, reciprocity you were mentioning it before is there a possibility should you know, uh, should the public sector, even on a governmental level, get involved? Mm. Well, what is interesting for the last uh, three, four months is that government um, is back in the economy. I mean, over, over the last 50 years, we saw a, a decrease of the role of government in the economy, and that was actually driven by the uh, neoliberalism ideology. And all of a sudden, we see a big comeback. And actually, it's not finance that's saving the world these days. It is, uh, uh, yeah, it is the people working in, a, in the street. It is yeah, it's the science, of science. course. It's the brain power rather than the financial. But that needs to be fueled by finance, on yeah. the other hand. You know? But it's, it, it's not the Wall Street bankers that are saving the world today. It's other people. And, um, and so, in a sense, we can see actually the role of government uh, going back. So... Whether you like it or not, government, in my view, will become again a key player in the economy over the years to come. Give me more. That's interesting. So it's 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 a paradigm shift. So it's no longer it's no longer uh, the private sector which actually will um, will um, organize the economy. It is the private sector and the big sector. And you could argue also that civil society will play uh, an increasing role, right? And this is actually relatively new. Okay. Uh, we uh, we used to deal with a kind of a, a dialogue between private sector and uh, and civil society, right? and globalization was more like a, a system 
to uh, actually uh, push away. Uh, yeah. the, uh, now with with this crisis, you can see government going back. Even the most um, even the most uh, yeah, neoliberal economy like the US, actually, you can see a big, big, big role of the government. So I think the years to come, we'll have to deal with three actors, public sector, private sector, and civil society. So therefore, um, the public sector will have a role to well, organize already, it. Doesn't it already, if I may interject there, Bruno, doesn't it already, if you look at education and you yourself, and this is how we met at Oxford mm. at Said Business School, you co-created the economics of mutuality as a course for a new breed of managers, of leaders, of uh, people really impacting the private sector. Right. Um, Yes, but I think the question was more about the role of government. And I think the role of government will play a role on two roles. They could actually organize the multilateralism. Uh, and we know today that multilateralism is a bit stuck. And, uh, and again, my argument that multilateralism has been also built for the last 50 years on the principle of power, which in the end, the winners take all. So you have almost a parallel between how a business was organized and multilateralism was organized. And we can see actually that business are kind of doing shift, sh shifting from power relationship to some sort of reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And they see it as a way to actually to, to make better business. My hope and argument that multilateralism should follow the same path. So abandoning the concept of power relationship and entering into a reciprocal relationship across nations. And so government can have a role in organizing the multilateralism at the macro level. So this is number one. Number two, actually, government can also have yeah, a role in organizing the tax system. And tax is, uh, is, is a very powerful incentive, right? And uh, that's a way to shift, uh, yeah, to change culture. But also, I think, through direct interventions of government in businesses and in, in, uh, in the economy, Government could also have a role in yeah, organizing it and the value creation model. So we will see in my view. Directly, doesn't that doesn't that take away from our democratic rights to just create what we want? You know, the interesting you say that because government has a, have a higher level of democratic uh, uh, response uh, uh, um, credentials than business. I mean, in, in democracy, you vote for your prime minister or your deputy or your president, right? As, as an employee, I don't vote for my CEO. You're stuck with him. <laughs> and actually, and, and the public doesn't vote for, uh, for the head of Facebook or the head of... A, and yet, so I think in a sense, I think we are in a much more... Um, I mean, the fact that government goes back into the economy is actually a good news for, for, for democracy because uh, government leaders have a democratic... Uh, uh, leg legitimacy that business leaders don't have. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one because I'm thinking of the big, big uh, populations, be it China, be it India. And I wonder to what extent, if I, I'm talking to the government leaders there, they don't, uh, and about economics of mutuality and how in the long term, really, it can reshape a lot of things to the good for, for our planet and humanity, whether they're just not going to come back with shrugging their shoulders and say, yeah, but you know, I've got 1.3 billion people to feed. You know, um, this is really sophisticated and that is something that is wonderful for developed economies uh, like in Europe, like in the US and other pockets in the world. However, for now, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice idea, but the fact is 
we just need to generate the next pay pack for the people to eat. Yeah, actually, China is a, is a very interesting uh, culture, which in my view is much more uh, conducive to the principle of mutuality than, than, than the Western world. This, this concept of the harmony and, uh, and um, actually one of the things, you know, I, I wrote a book a few years ago and I, I received a few weeks after my book was published uh, uh, an offer from, from Citic Press in, in China to, to translate my book. And I was very surprised because I'm, I'm not a very known author. And I say, what is it actually that interests you in, in what you are? I say, because the type of economy that you are building resonates a lot with the culture of China. So I think um, this is actually just an anecdote about China. But I think, again, you see, like any innovation, it takes time, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's why I, I with, with the movement that we are creating around this economics of mutuality, we really put one put the emphasis on education and education of the next generation of business leaders. So that's why yeah. we, have a, we have a program to train MBAs across the world, just to tell them that there is actually another model, okay? A model which is actually is superior in terms of evaluation and superior in terms of, of, of responsibility. But it takes time. And there is, a, there is a philosopher in Germany that I like to quote very often, Schopenhauer, and he said, like, every truth has to go through th four stages. The first one is that it is ignored. The second stage is that it is um, uh, ridiculed. The third stage is that it is violently opposed. And the fourth stage is that it is accepted as self-evident. So when you are proposing... Where, where are we with economics of mutuality, Bruno, right now? In what sort of stage? It depends on, on the ecosystem. It depends where we talk to. But I think we, we passed the ridiculed. Yeah. You see? Yeah. We passed the ridiculed because people just realize now that the model that we have, the financial capitalism, is not a solution to the world, right? So we are probably, depending on where we are, we are between ridiculed and being self-accepted. Uh, yeah, and I think you were just saying, not really, you know, it's it's not the solution. Financial capitalism is not the solution. I think it's one of the main problems, and people are waking up, helped by the fact, pervertedly, that uh, we have this big climate crisis, which is not going away, and which has been, to large part, self-produced through the way we're going about mm -hmm. in building businesses. So uh, perhaps right now we are at a timely sweet spot for economics of mutuality to really start, uh, go beyond the ridicule and go beyond being fought, but mm -hmm. perhaps endorsed, implemented and practiced. But again, Patricia, it also depends. I mean, it, it goes back to, uh, it goes back to how you're going to build your business. And, uh, and you know, it, it, it took, it took hundred years to abolish slavery. And when I was studying uh, the story of the uh, uh, abolition of slavery in the UK, driven by William Wilberforce, who was a politician, etc., there was a moment which was very interesting because at, at the beginning, the uh, abolitionist movement was more driven by moral and religious values. Right? But at some stage, uh, William Wilberforce realized that uh, in order to speed up the abolition of slavery, he had to demonstrate to the to the to, uh, slave trades, that it was economically more efficient for them to abandon slavery. Yeah, that actually was a, that was a tipping point to accelerate the uh, abolitionist movement. And I think we are here at a very similar stage. We can see actually today that uh, financial capitalism, based on power relationship, 
is starting to become not only less efficient than 10, 20 years ago, but it's also starting to be destructive. And if there is one thing that this COVID crisis is demonstrating is this, right? So therefore, in parallel, and this is actually the, the, the purpose of research and education and, and ID, and the economics of mutuality is a, a solution to say, well, okay, entrepreneurship is a critical uh, component to value creation. Capitalism is also a critical tool for value creation. However, the current form of capitalism is not complete. It needs completing. And it's a bit like uh, you have, you're evolving an innovation and you have to add new features to a product. I really believe actually that we can demonstrate over time that this form of capitalism is more complete and also more responsible and therefore is a, is a way to reposition business and business leadership as um, a force for good for society and the world. So we, we are there, uh, there is like a crossroad, like uh, when the problems become more uh, visible than the, than, than, than the solution they used to bring, then you have space, a mental space, for a great number of leaders to uh, test new things. I yes. think we are at a stage where the mass majority of these leaders are there. So the what is quite clear. Okay, you understand it. It's a how. Yeah. And there is not very much methodology at this stage which actually can drive business as a how. There is a lot of te reporting techniques, reporting solutions, reporting methodologies, but not very much management innovations. And we very modestly with the economics of JIT, with Oxford and Mars, we, 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 we make contribution to, this, to that space okay, of management innovation. And I hope actually that there will be other schools of thoughts uh, to populate that space and propose to the world a, a model for value creation based on reciprocal relationship versus value extraction based on um, maximizing just the value of a few. And that is a true paradigm shift here on how to go about business. And this is why I think what you said, you're creating a different, a new breed of leaders is absolutely true. So uh, to, to wrap up our conversation, Bruno, in COVID-19 from crisis to creation, mm. to what extent or what would you say is the main creation opportunity right now for businesses um, to go on and create resilient long-lasting and thus sustainable businesses? I think many companies, business, I mean, I'm talking to a lot of business leaders, uh, even if we are locked down, we, thanks to technology, we can talk to a lot of people. And I can see actually uh, that many business leaders are willing to uh, re-establish their strategy, including their most uh, strategic stakeholders. That's a shift that I see, uh, uh, which I didn't see even six months ago. That's number one. And of course, it's going to have different, different type of, of, uh, of, of thinking. Some people think about, we have to relocalize some of our production. Uh, we have to build closer relationship with some of our suppliers. Uh, we have to integrate the pain point, actually, of society that we did, we did ignore. So essentially, there is this concept of ecosystem and, take, and looking after the needs of the others is really a shift that I see in the mind, mindset of the leaders. Uh, the second thing that I, I see also is, um, yeah, it's also uh, that pe people feel helpless a little bit. And uh, it's a bit like, um, uh, I guess it's a bit like the, uh, 
the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Okay, people knew actually the Berlin Wall would collapse, but at least when the Berlin would collapse, there was an alternative to embrace. Okay, now it's a different kind of wall that's collapsing. It's kind of maybe the world of Wall Street, and there is not real alternative yet behind it. And I think this is really where the role of, of management schools and research in, 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 uh, in economics and, and management that should fill the gap. And of course, the economics of mutuality is one contribution out of many, but I think it is a pragmatic one. And I hope actually that over time, business will embrace, not, if not the economics of mutuality, at least the principle of it, yeah. in order to build more resilient business and more responsible business at the same time. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. And um, I am a very big proponent for the economics of mutuality, inclusiveness, holistic view of everything, and a long-term view. Numbers are super important. On the other hand, of course, they need to stay. And this is a good way to continue to, to generate profitability and include everybody and also uh, heal the world. And just to complete also for our viewers, Bruno, you are the author, co-author of uh, Completing Capitalism. You mentioned it earlier on Heal Business to Heal the World. It came out in 2018 and that was also the year when I had the privilege to meet mm -hmm. you and be in contact ever since. And you are also authoring the second bo uh, book, uh, following on putting uh, purpose into practice, the economics of mutuality, together with Colin Meyer. Bruno, thank you so much for coming on to Mentor TV. Thank you, Patricia. And greetings to all the people who are listening to your program. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And yes, thank you, Mentory TV community, for having joined us yet again for another edition here on the show and Bruno Roche. Please let me know, continue to let me know your comments, uh, what you like, what you didn't like, your suggestions, what you'd like to be mentored about, because I'm getting them on for you. Those people that live it, share it and mentor it. See you soon. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.